Okay. Um, tonight's agenda, we'll do a quick review of Daniel for the reasons that I talked about before. Uh, we're not going to look at everything, like I said. We'll basically just do a real quick scenario of or synopsis of where, where Daniel fit in, some of the things about the book of Daniel. I'd mentioned about there never forgetting the political context of what's going on in the events of both where he is and what's going on in the world. And then we'll dive into chapter one. As we mentioned last week, Daniel is the fourth of the major Old Testament prophets. And there are, if you're looking at the Old Testament, I always say, just remember five, five, 512, 5512. It's like 512, 5512. Five books of law, 12 books of history, five books of poetry, five books of major prophets, and 12 books of the minor prophets. And Daniel fits in as to one of the five major prophetic books uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, and then Ezekiel and then Daniel. That's always good to remember. It tells us where we are. Uh, we mentioned about the book of Daniel contains two languages, not the language that you and I pick up and read right here, which is an English translation. But if you had gotten a hold to an original copy or copies of copies that are very, very old, you would find that the book of Daniel contains both Hebrew and Aramaic. We talked about like a hamburger bun. The top bun and the bottom bun are in Hebrew and in the middle and around chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7, uh, verse 28, you have Aramaic language that is, uh, and it's interesting, we'll get into that probably next week of, of some of the reasons why some people think it is there. It is written around 530 B.C., um, most people do believe, the uh, traditional belief is and Daniel did write the book for a number of reasons, which are fascinating. Anxious Jews believe that Jesus quoted Daniel in uh, Matthew and in Mark, as recorded in Matthew and Mark. And, it, and these kinds of things are just so interesting about the Aramaic language itself that what you find in Daniel was representative of the language that was used between the 700 and 200 year B.C., after 200 year BC, that kind of language kind of disappeared. And it wasn't in existence before 700. So it kind of narrows the time of when that book was written. Plus, there are several words in Daniel that you'll never find in the Aramaic literature after the year 300 BC. So it does place that book well into that particular time frame. And 530 BC is a pretty good representation. Uh, Daniel in the Old Testament, we remember as far as where he fits in the Old Testament. Big, big, big picture. We have all these events that have already taken place as recorded in the Old Testament. Everything on the left side from the Genesis account recording creation, the flood, the scattering of the people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, how, the, how the Joseph was taken into Egypt, then it grew into a great nation, Exodus out of Egypt led by Moses, the wilderness wandering, conquest of the promised land, we had the judges period of about 400 years. We had the United Kingdom with Saul and David and Solomon. And then we flip into the divided kingdom. 
And the divided kingdom is now where we have two kingdoms in the Old Testament that's now divided into the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Um, the northern tribe of Israel lasted from about 921 to, 9, to 721 B.C. We mentioned the number of prophets, writing prophets that are in the Old Testament that are in that particular time frame. And then we see where Israel then falls to Assyria in 721 B.C., which left Judah all by her lonesome self, which is in the fall of Judah is recorded in the Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Actually, all of the divided kingdom and the uh, Judah by herself are all in, in second, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Well, roughly. Um, then we have the writing prophets that are there as well. Then once Judah falls, we get into, and that Judah fell um, kind of in our last class. <laughs> uh, I think we covered that. Uh, Jeremiah. Judah falls, and as prophesied by Jeremiah, there would be a period of captivity of 70 years in Babylon. And so Daniel is now serving as a captive in, ba in, Dan in Babylon. And uh, by the way, Ezekiel, who will go in the second wave of captivities, of cap captives that are taken to Babylon, is also there in around 597. Eventually, God promised that his people would return back to the promised land where eventually everything that this all points to is the life of Christ. Everything about the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. We, as I mentioned last week, the Old Testament contains history, but it's not like a history. It's a history, but it is not a history book for the world. It contains all kinds of beautiful literature, but everything is about how it relates to the coming of Jesus Christ and eventually how Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That was the entire plan. That's why we are here tonight, because the gospel was preached to me and to you, and we obeyed it. And as a result, we're here together, assembling together, just like Hebrews 10, 25 tells us to do, to encourage one another, to provoke one another to love and good works, to study where God, God's plan was, how he came to where we are, and how we fit into that great plan and how our job is is to be holy for him, just as he wanted his people to be holy for him, but then to spread the word and to tell people about Jesus Christ. So we mentioned the purpose was fourfold. It led a number of purposes, but the ones we mentioned about was to display the providential working of God in history, and that is on display big time in the book of Daniel. And also we see where God is superior to any of the outer gods of the heathen nations, we have a preview of things to come from Nebuchadnezzar to the, after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, all the way to the setting up of the Messianic kingdom that Jesus Christ set up. And then finally, we see the sovereignty of God over all potential enemies and circumstances, and that God is in control. Remember the political context of the book. Babylon comes to power, and so Daniel in the book of Daniel, is in Babylon, and he is going to be there under numerous administrations over a 70-year period. You see all the Babylonian uh, monarchs or kings that were listed there. When we start off in the book of, of uh, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned here in the beginning of Daniel. Then all of these are skipped. It's not even mentioned. 
And then we come, the very last person's mission is Belshazzar. So it's important to note the, the long reigns. Nebuchadnezzar, of the 66 years that he was there the first time with, uh, between these two governments, Nebuchadnezzar himself was reigning 43 of those years. Now, if every president reigned two terms, that would be at least five presidents or five and a half presidents, okay? And so we have one king reigning in Babylon for 43 years that Daniel would be serving under. And finally, we do have some mention of Belshazzar, which is really a crown prince. He was kind of a co-regent with his dad, but um, I don't know if he actually officially, if you look at all the literature, they don't actually officially list him as one of the kings. Um, but he was a co-regent given the fact that he was the crown prince. And remember, we talked about Nabonidus spent all this time away from Babylon and basically gave, um, he gave Belshazzar the ability to rule over Babylon itself. And we'll talk about him when we get a little bit later on in the, in the book of Daniel. And then we finally, once ba the Babylonians are defeated by the Medo-Persians, he then serves under the reigns of Darius the Mede and also King Cyrus. Remember, King Cyrus is actually the big guy in charge anyway. Darius reports to the King Cyrus. But he, he ended up serving a long time over there. Um, the key people that we wanted to mention, obviously, is Nebuchadnezzar. And they were taken captive uh, with his three friends. We mentioned that last week. And that we covered all of that last week in, a, in an hour. And we did it in 10 minutes. Very good. <laughs> okay. So tonight, where are we? We're in chapter 1. And the outline that we're going to look at tonight is the setting. The setting is the third year of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is not a good king. Um, he was reprimanded by Jeremiah many times. Jeremiah didn't want to listen to him. And ultimately, we'll see that he was punished. But the big outline of chapter 1 is in the first seven verses, we see Daniel being taken to Babylon. Uh, the next eight or nine verses, we see the talk of his three years of training begins in Babylon, and we see a first test that's going to come to him. Not an academic test, but a character test, a spiritual test, something that he's not even being taught by the Chaldeans, but it is a test, and we'll see how he does. And then we are going to talk about the big interview. Anybody had a big interview lately? Daniel had a big interview that happened at the end of the three years and then we'll specifically look at verse 21 about the long life that he had. So if you were to get up and take a look at the Jerusalem Daily News, you may see this particular headline. Jerusalem captured temple articles and young men taken. What's that all about? Now that's about the first seven verses that we see in the book of Daniel chapter 1. And as we look at Daniel chapter 1... We're, we just talked about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. When you besiege somebody, a city, you are totally surrounding that city. There is no escape. There is no way out. There's the big bad army of the Babylonians coming up against this little bitty town of Jerusalem. Is it protected? Could it have been protected from them? Absolutely, because if God had said, don't even come near it, they wouldn't have come near it. But that's not what happens. They are besieged. They are captured, as we see in the first few, few verses. 
And it only took 23 years, 23 short years from the time that the last good king of Judah reigned, Josiah, to the time that Judah fell. You would have thought they learned their lesson, but that's not the case. 23 short years. Now, the question that we have before us is, would the siege be successful? And the answer is yes, it will be successful because we can read that. But it's not for the obvious reasons of a military might coming upon a city. The real reasons are, are contained there in verse 2. From Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, though, he, had, he and his dad had just defeated the Assyrians. They'd also beat the Egyptians. Is there anybody that's going to stand in their way from their perspective? Nobody. Nobody's going to be in their way. They can take anything that they want. I'm big, I'm bad, I can take what I want. I am Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> Nobody can stop me. But the real reason is, is displayed to us and revealed to us in chapter 1, verse 2. And here's the real reason. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar was a great warrior. He was a great leader. But the real reason that he got to do what he did is because of God allowed it. And it wasn't because he could outsmart God. It wasn't because he could outwit God. God just allowed him to deliver and to take uh, Judah into Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's hands because of their wickedness. Now, do you think Nebuchadnezzar knew that? I doubt it. <laughs> you know, I'm, it's pure speculation on my part. Maybe he heard through the, grape, through the grapevine that this is why God did it. I don't know. But Jehoiakim was just not the victim of a big, bad political marching army. It was something that was by design that God said this is going to take place because they committed spiritual adultery against him. They were unfaithful to him. And because of that, he is going to punish them. Um, notice in verse 2, where did he take these vessels that he grabbed? He took them to the house of his God. And we might ask the question, did Nebuchadnezzar know who the God of Judah and the God of Israel was? Again, more than likely, he may have heard about him a little bit, but he didn't really know who God was. But he is going to learn who God was. And specifically, we'll see some of the stories that God is going to be relaying to him through Daniel that will help him get a bigger, better picture of who the God of Daniel is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that's, and part of that's going to be revealed to us in chapter 4. Look to about in uh, verse 4. Uh, there were two things that he captured and took with him to Babylon. We talked about the vessels from the temple. And then in verse 3, he said he was instru he instructed Aphanes, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles and young men with him. So notice real carefully, this is not just anybody and everybody. There's a specific group of people that, that Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to bring. Children of Israel, king's descendants, some of the nobles. That's a select group of people. Select group of people. I don't know how they were selected. I don't know the examination process. But not only did they have these characteristics, if you look in verse 4, 
it said that they also had to possess no blemish. They had to be good looking. I'm reading from the New King James. They had to be gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, <coughs> quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. They were not old men. They were youths. They were of a teachable age. They could learn and potentially probably learn things and overcome some resistance that maybe some older people might have had to endure. They had to have no physical imperfections. Um, one of the ancient cuneiform texts mentions some Babylonian diviners were expected to be without blemish when they approached their gods. And isn't it interesting how that same characteristic applied to these people? No blemishes. They had to be well-favored, meaning attractive appearance. They had to already possess wisdom, knowledge, and understanding with the entire purpose to be able to stand in front of Nebuchadnezzar in the king's palace and to serve him and to be one of his top advisors. And we're going to see Daniel did a great job of fulfilling that particular role. But what was the big plan that Nebuchadnezzar had? Um, notice, if you take a look at verse 5, and I'll let you read that, but if you take a look at verse 5, there were four specific things that Nebuchadnezzar provided these people. He provided them room, in other words, a place to stay. He provided them board. He provided food for them. So room and board were provided. Now, it didn't help that they were captives. It's not like they had a choice. But he was taking care of them. Matter of fact, what he provided them is exactly, as far as the food goes, is exactly what he ate. It wasn't the scraps. These people were supposed to be trained to be the best, and they got exactly what the king got to eat of, all the delicacies of the king. Notice that he also provided them a career path. It wasn't a career path that they probably would have chosen by themselves, but it was a three-year internship <laughs> to learn about everything about the Chaldeans, the, the language, the literature. I would imagine it probably was something that was, if anybody in Chaldea could do it, they probably would have jumped at the opportunity to learn exactly what these guys are going to be taught. But it was an internship so that at the end of it, they could serve in his administration to do whatever he wanted them to do to be one of his advisors. And then you'll notice at the end of that in verse 7, he also provided them a fourth thing, and that was a new name. So we always know, we always know Daniel. What's the other? What's the other three? We always know. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? And that was their Chaldean name. Hebrew names were Daniel. What had that? Michelle, Azariah, and Hananiah. And I don't know where that went on my, on my uh, sheet, okay? But let me ask you this. If you had the ability to rename somebody and to give you a new name, what does that mean that you have over them? Total authority. You have control. You have ownership in a way, don't you? So renaming somebody was not only smart, but it was also a political deal. Remember, Joseph was renamed when he went to Egypt. After he proved himself to be a viable advisor, he was given a new name himself. But 
it would be a, an interesting thing for them. What if they were trying to go around Chaldea or Babylon and they kept throwing out their Hebrew name? People would look at them and go, who? What are you talking about? But a Chaldean name would be much more easier to carry on the business of the Babylonians. And so there was a lot of reasons why they may have done that, just to make it easy upon them, and also to fully integrate them into the daily functions of Babylonian society. Now, there was one thing that they did not have control on when it came to the names, and that was the name. But there's one thing that they never lost control of, and that was their character. And that's what we learn in Daniel. You can change my name. You can do anything that you want, but you can't force me to change my character. And that's what stands out in the book of Daniel. So three years of training so they could stand before the king, a new name, room and board, and boom, they are good to go. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Babylon. Babylon is a fascinating city, especially when you compare it to where they came from in Jerusalem. I mean, the size alone would be just, you'd be walking around and all. It'd be like us trying to probably go down to New York City. I mean, our eyes would, and jaws would just drop and go, wow, look at all this. But Babylon... Where is that? It's in modern-day Iraq, about 50 miles south of Baghdad. The journey from Jerusalem to Babylon, like how did they get there? Well, it would all depend on, you know, whether they walked or rode on the motorcycles or, you know, the jeeps that they had back then, which were camels or whatever the case may be. But if someone were to travel by car today on the highways that they have, it's about 670 miles, a little bit less than 700 miles. So it'd take you roughly 11 hours. If you had to walk, it would be almost an um, 11-day walk. If you could walk 20 miles a day, it would take you, and that's if you walk 24-7. If you walk 20 miles a day, it would take you 33 days. If you walk 10 miles a day, it would take you 67 days. This is not just a little bitty stroll from here to there. It's a long way for almost 700 miles. And then with a large caravan of people going back with an army to Babylon, there's no telling how long it took them to get from Jerusalem to Babylon. But they're going there for the purpose. As they were entering the city, they found a city that was huge and massive. It's, it's estimated that approximately 200,000 people lived within the walls of Babylon. Walls that were 11 miles in, in distance around the city. Walls that were 25 feet thick. Feet thick. Uh, did I say that? Feet thick, yeah. There was a moat around Babylon that was supposed to protect it really, really well. Inside the walls, there was another set of 25-foot walls. So this was a well-established place for them to be. It was a vibrant city. It was rebuilt with money and the treasures that they had been collecting as they, as they captured all these people. And they could see all these things. There was one reverence that I talked about that one particular wall may have been as high as 300 feet high. 30 stories? It's a big wall. <laughs> big wall. But they were experiencing new things. But they were also, I'm sure, if you were away, captured and taken to city like that, who would you be missing? Everybody that you just left. So it's, it's a city that presents all kinds of opportunities for them now, but it's also a city 700 miles from home. I'm sure they're homesick. I'm sure they're wanting home. The king's palace itself was there. Everything was within the city walls. 
There was a place where people lived. The northern part is where the palace was. The palace would have been something like you would see in some, uh, kind of like in, the way, in a way, the White House. The White House is the residence of the president, but it's also a political center, an administration center. And believe me, there are security people there. <laughs> and there was a military garrison at this particular place as well in Babylon. So it's very, very interesting what they're stepping into. And sometimes we have to just sit back and go, oh, yeah, this is just not a little stroll into a, the city next door. They're captives. They're being taken against their will. And now what are they going to do? What is their next plan? And so then we get into the next section. And if I had to put a little headline on that one, young men question daily provisions, and God provides for them. That's what that's all about. Beginning of verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies. Remember, we just read about that in verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank during the entire three-year period of training. And so now we see the first test. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. We could speculate for all day long about what all this means. It just means I'm not going to eat that. <laughs> I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what would have defiled it, but he knew what would have defiled it. And as a result of that, he began to put together a plan saying, I'm not going to go against my God. But he made up his mind to not make sure he eats the king's choice food or the wine that he drank. Now, let me ask you this. What would have been the easy thing to do? I'll eat it, right? After all, who's going to be checking up on me? My mom and dad are in Judah. They're in Jerusalem. All the priests are in Jerusalem. Who's going to see? It's just me and my three buddies. And if I get them to do it with me, party, 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 right? I mean, we can go and do anything we want. Who will ever find out? Yes, sir. Not only that, you'd be in survival yeah. You, you don't want to do anything to stand out. Yeah. And what's he going to do right off the bat? Stand out. <laughs> I mean, and you think about that. He is going to knock on the guy's door and make a request that we're going to read about here in a few minutes. So at this point, his character is being revealed. And it's at this point that the character of anybody would be revealed. Am I going to serve the Lord because I believe it in my heart? beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to serve the Lord? Or am I serving the Lord because everybody else does and I'm just going along with it? I mean, it's time to fish or cut bait right now, isn't it? He's got to make up his mind. Do I serve the Lord? Or maybe some of the other people that were taken, maybe it, we don't have any record of what they're doing, but at least Daniel and his three friends are beginning to question this. And they're like, I can't do this. Character is being revealed. He, who would know that he's doing this? God would. Who else? He would. Yeah, he would. Could he live with himself? If he knew that he did it, and it was a violation of their law and or conscience, I mean, after all, they don't have a temple to go sacrifice to anymore. What can they do to obey the Jewish law? There's not a priest that can go, hey, here's my sacrifice, and I want you to offer it to him today. Everything about his system had been disrupted. 
Everything that he was used to is now no longer in his life. There's only a few things he can control. And what he can control, he's attempted to control. But he's got to be careful because he's now under a new master and he don't want to cause a problem. Would you? <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. Incidentally, do you recall how young, he was, how young he was, yet he felt this way? Yeah, umpteen, <laughs> umpteen, whatever that is, 14, 15, 16. He's a young man. And this is the point that I don't want us to forget either. Just because Judah as a whole was going south and was an evil and adulterous nation, that did not mean that they were not always faithful people who were attempting to follow God. And I can only surmise that if he has this kind of a conscience in Babylon to do what he could do to control and be as faithful to God as he could, I can only imagine that he had to have a pretty strong upbringing despite all the things that were going on in Judah. And that's an interesting thing to think about. So what was his plan? Well, Daniel purposed in his heart, verse 8, that he would not defile himself. In other words, he was going to determine to find a solution to comply with the problem with what he believed were the requirements of the Mosaic law. So what did he do? Well, verse 8 says the first thing that he did is he requested from the chief of the eunuchs to be excused from the food. In other words, he thought, who can help me solve this problem? And he goes to the chief and says, for three years, basically, can you excuse me from eating the king's delicacies? The New American Standard said he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. How did that go? Not too well. Read verse 10. Um, the chief of the eunuchs said, Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your, your food and drink. Why should he see your faces looking worse for the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head <laughs> before the king. And if something goes wrong, I've got to an answer for it. So thank you, but no thank you. The answer is no. But he did not take no for an answer. He then asked a second person, the one who was directly set over him and his three friends. But this time he changes the plan. He's going to say, not three whole years, just give me a test. Try me for 10 days. Let me eat vegetables and water. You withhold the king's delicacies. And then after the end of the 10-day test, you come and look at me. Examine me and my three friends compared to everybody else. And then he puts it in his hands. He said, whatever you find then, it'll be what you want to do. He had faith, though, that it would work out. And, uh, and sure enough, he did. So he consented. The steward took away the king's delicacies. He simply gave them vegetables and water. And by the way, he's probably thinking, what risk is there? I mean, 10 days? I can always recover them. I can beef them up with some more food if I need to. But at the end of 10 days, what happened? They were okay. Matter of fact, it said they looked better and fatter, plumpier than even the people who were eating the king's delicacies. So the plan was going all well. But what else is going on behind the scenes? God's providential care is at work. Just like verse 2 where God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Babylonian, here God brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. So God is not only sovereign 
of the world's most powerful rulers. He's also sovereign over their minions. Isn't that amazing? Remember Joseph? Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph and he showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. We might ask, how did God do that? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I just know he did. It's apparent that two things are in play here, though. Daniel, first of all, had a part on his, had a role on his part to do what? He purposed in his heart that he would obey God. And then God's role was he granted him favor in the chief of the eunuchs. And I tell you, sometimes I can't but believe that his favor that he had toward Daniel was also passed down to the steward. Like, you need to be careful with this guy. I like him. You take care of it. I'm not going to do, do this, but you go talk to, maybe it's, maybe it's one of those things, look, I can't grant that, but go talk to this guy. Maybe he can handle it. <laughs> I don't know. It would be interesting. But God also granted them knowledge in verse 17 of skill in all literature and wisdom. And not only would that be critical over the three-year period, it would be critical over the 10-day period that they're being tested. How long have you, well, vegetables and water, we've all eaten that. So, you know, I don't know what, what could have happened to them, but anyway, God was faithful. And they learned that when they studied Deuteronomy chapter 7, they le and we learned that in the New Testament as well. What were the results in verses 15 and 16? Well, they said, we said they looked better, they looked fatter in the flesh than all the, than all the other uh, young men. And as a result of that, the steward removed the king's delicacies from the daily provisions and provided them vegetables and water, I assume, because that's what they asked for, and everything was going great. Meanwhile, God blesses them during the three-year training period with all knowledge, literature, and wisdom. And in particular, in verse 17, God also blessed Daniel with what? The ability to understand visions and dreams. It was specifically mentioned to him. So even though they were 700 miles away from home, Surrounded by people who practiced pagan religions and didn't know the one true God, God never abandoned them to their enemies. And in his unseen ways, he continued to help them and he continued to bless them. Which brings us to the big interview. Young men interviewed. Four appointed to serve before the king. That's the headlines. Combination of three years of training is now at hand, and now they have to go and stand before King Nebuchadnezzar himself and be grilled by him in all matters of wisdom, knowledge, and anything that he wanted to ask them. I can imagine that had to be intense. A simple interview is intense in and of itself. But he knows this is the guy that defeated everybody that I, my family's still back in Jerusalem. This is the guy that can basically take my head off. But his faith was in God, and he did well. I don't think he felt that way, because I think he knew God had blessed them with talents and skills and wisdom. And I'm sure they were ready for the interview. And as far as the chief of the eunuchs go, I'm sure he was, he knew they were ready. Why would you bring somebody into the interview after three years they were not ready? But they were ready. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. At the end, uh, let's see, then the king interviewed them all. And among them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Hezariah. Therefore, they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were already in his realm. 
The results were absolutely outstanding. Astounding and outstanding. Um, among them, verse 19, was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But did you pick up what he said in verse 20? In all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better, not just among the three that were, or the people that were trained for the first three years, but among everybody, including the magicians, the astrologers that were in his realm. The people who already were serving him, these guys were already surpassed. The rookies surpassed the veterans in the very first interview. That had to be impressive to them, and he had to know that was something that was important. Was their hard work important? Absolutely. They had a role to play. But there was also God's providential hand helping them along the way. And as a result, they stood before the king. We're not told about the others, by the way. We don't know what happened to them. It's not about, this story is not about them. This story is about God's people. Um, but these three are now before the king in whatever setting that would allow them to be launched into an even greater position of responsibility and influence in the Babylonian kingdom. Which then brings us to verse 21. Daniel continued, there's a, just a simple statement. Daniel continued into the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, Daniel continued to faithfully serve the Lord and the Chaldean Medo-Persian kings throughout the entire period of captivity spanning some 70 years. Remember, King Darius and King Cyrus is at the very bottom of those lists of kings. It didn't say 70 years, but when you take a look at everybody who reigned, this is a 70-year period. But he's mentioning this right here that he specifically mentions the first year of King Cyrus. After all, that year, 538, is an important biblical year as far as history goes. It marked the end of the Chaldean Empire, plus it was the year that Cyrus proclaimed that all the captives who had been taken to Babylon, no matter where they were from, could now go back home, including those taken from Judah. So Daniel was, he was not... He, Daniel was not, not only was one of the first captives taken, he lived long enough to see some of the first Jewish captives return and go back home to enjoy a homecoming. That puts him somewhere in the range of 85 to 90 years old, which is very interesting. In the book of Ezra, we read, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through it all of his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. He knows who God is. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And who is among you all his people? May his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now that's why that's in there. A statement at the end of chapter 1 that actually takes place 70 years later. But it also sets up what's going to happen in chapter 2 and, and beyond. Now, let's take a look at a couple of applications. I think it is readily apparent that a training our children provides a strong foundation for their future. Um, that just jumps off the page, doesn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
Moses reminded the people in his, one of his last great statements. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Looking at the lives of Daniel and his three friends, I have no doubt that his parents did that. Why would they have been so dedicated at this point in time? Train up a child in the way that he should go. And that's exactly what they did. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Faithful young men and women can inspire and encourage us. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Let, listen to this, and you would just think they wrote about Daniel and his three friends. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example. I don't know what the other Jewish captives did. I don't know if they were inspired to do what they did. But they led by example. To the believers in word, in conduct, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And we're going to see that about Daniel all the way through the book. Uh, there are powers in numbers. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were in a spiritual fight together. And as we're going to look next week, they even talked among each other and said, how are we going to handle all these things? I was reminded that one may be overpowered by another. Two can withstand him. And a three-fold cord, three cord is not quickly broken. What about a four-fold cord? Four-fold cord. It's even better. We need each other. That's why we are here to encourage one another, to see me see you saying, I'm here to press on. I'm here to listen to God's word. That's why we need each other. And when they finally, oh, I, actually, I reversed that. I put, I, I got mixed up on my fingers. No, I didn't. I had number four, number three, then I changed it. I didn't change the words. When the world yells conform, we must stand firm and continue to control our inner character that has been guided and molded by God's word. Daniel was in the world, but he was not of the world. They were in Babylon, but they were not of Babylon. They were given new names, but their character stayed the same. There's no greater verse to end tonight than look at 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust thereof. He who does the will of God abides forever. That is almost a beautiful summary of their life. It's a beautiful summary of the stand that they took in chapter 1. And it's a beautiful summary of us to end this study tonight to think about and meditate on. Thank you for your kind attention.